Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everyone. We may not know the secret sauce to success, but looking to wildly successful people can help you find inspiration. As a columnist and feature writer for The Washington Post for more than 20 years, Sally Jenkins has had a front row seat to some of the most successful athletes in the world, including Steve Kerr, Peyton Manning, LeBron James, and the list goes on and on. Sally is a sports writer and best-selling author of 12 books. She was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020 and was the first woman to be inducted in the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame in 2005. In today's episode, Sally and I talk about everything she's learned about grit, motivation, and burnout from interviewing countless elite athletes. Look, this episode is not just for people who love sports. It's an episode for anyone looking to visualize their goals and elevate their game, your health game very much included. So at the highest level, what can us mere mortals learn from all these elite athletes you've studied and chronicled in your book? I would say the main thing we should be borrowing from them is the fact that they're not as easily destroyed as the rest of us by a setback. Uh, their their persistence is really the main takeaway for me. Uh, the rest of us meet an obstacle or a setback and we go, well, yeah, I guess we're not quite good enough or I guess it's just not going to happen. And the athletes at the top level that I've covered, they come back and back and back and back. So why do you think that is? Uh, experience partly. I think they've they've learned resilience uh, on the field of play. Uh, they understand that one play doesn't determine the entire game, and that the the uh, the champion that that emerges is the one that you know isn't so uh, undone by by the moment, but realizes that it's moment after moment after moment that really counts. Uh, and and those are the people that prevail, the ones that have, you know, any game you're going to endure all kinds of uh, unexpected events and all kinds of unanticipated setbacks. And so athletes have to develop that mental equipment. You know, it's it's just a must-have for them uh, to get through a 60-minute event of any sort. Uh, and the rest of us, I think, don't think in those terms. You know, I think we think that uh, one. One experience is in a profession or in an event is sort of it, you know? So do you think us mere mortal non-athletes have become more fragile over the course of time, or has this always been the case? I'm not a sociologist, but my anecdotal evidence at the, uh, at the, at the age that I am and my level of maturity and development t- says, yes, we are uh, a little more fragile than we used to be, particularly younger athletes. That's not true of everyone, of course. That's a it's a sweeping statement. But yes, I think we've lost a little of that. It makes total sense to me. As our listeners know, I played basketball in college. I, I, I will look at sports as having the most profound impact on me as a human being, as an entrepreneur. Learn more from sports about adversity, about losing, about teamwork, 
uh, about winning, about commitment. I could go on and on, but I, to this day, it's why I'm such a big believer in sports for, for kids. Just the fact that the term loser has become so prevalent in our society tells you a little something about that, right? You know, the fact that you can get branded, you know, with an L on your forehead pretty young and pretty, pretty easily um, tells you that maybe we're not thinking about it the right way. Yeah. You know, I, we're, we're trying to very top of mind because we're trying to teach this lesson to our young daughters who are six and four that no one likes losing. No one does, but it's what you do with it. Do you bounce back? Do you, are you are you gracious? Do you can does it motivate you? Do you work hard, or you know do you does it destroy you? Do you quickly blame others? Do you completely blame yourself? Do you completely detach yourself? It could go so many different ways, right? And I think that you know the thing that you know I would try to tell younger writers or uh, or anyone in any sort of situation is. You know, those are the opportunities for uh, real self-definition. Who are you in that moment? You know, it's not so much about other people. It's not so much about the ref. It's not about the opponent. It's who are you in that moment? You know, how do you manage yourself? How do you handle yourself? And, and on this subject of resilience, it reminds me of mindset, scarcity versus abundance. Yeah. I mean, Look, uh, you know, there's plenty of great champions who've come from abundance. So I don't want to say that scarcity, there is something about scarcity creating winners. Uh, I, I do believe that. Uh, but, but plenty of them have come from abundance too. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, Peyton Manning certainly had a very privileged, uh, upbringing and, and so did Patrick Mahomes. Um, but they were brought up in abundance by champion athletes. Well, I, I wasn't, I should have clarified, I wasn't, I, my intention wasn't the financial well-being of the family. It was more around mindset in terms of unlimited versus anything's possible. Yes. Yes. And, you know, you ha you have to be, uh, you know, look, I'm not going to become a champ, you know, a world-class cellist, <laughs> right? At, at my, my age, you know, or my, uh, you have to be realistic about that. But what, what you what can be said uh, what athletes say to me all the time is that within your chosen profession that you have practiced and and conditioned yourself for for many many years, uh, the the sentence there is not final. It never is. Uh, you know, some things like age will finally, you know, take its toll on you. But even Tom Brady, you know, is proving that uh, those limits are fairly artificial too. If you have devoted your life to your craft, uh, those limits are are also perhaps fairly artificial and and we may be cheating ourselves there as well. So you have to have the background, you have to have the conditioning and the discipline and all the other factors that I list in the right call within that profession. You have to choose something to do and throw yourself into it and go all in. But once you do that, I think your chances of getting the outcome you want are really better than not. So beyond resilience, what are some of the other qualities which the best athletes world in the world have in common? Well, the first thing that they start with is is the first chapter of the book, which is conditioning. You know, they're very, very deeply uh, conditioned. They have a baseline of essential fitness for their task, right? So uh, that's essential. You can't get much of any place without it because when you get gassed is when you start making really bad decisions. And 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 by the way, the the book is called the right call because all of the things that you see athletes do, even the most inspired seeming moments. Are micro decisions. They're 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 choices, right? 
So even Steph Curry, when he's taking a shot that looks like a miracle shot, he's made a series of micro decisions leading up to that. When to take the shot, whether to take the shot, where to take it from, how to create the shot, you know, how, which, uh, which leverage and angle to take against his opponent. So all those are micro decisions happening very, 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 very quickly. The way that you make the messaging system from your ba- brain to your body efficient in order to behave well in that moment is through conditioning. It has a deep neurological effect. And so you groove yourself and your behaviors through conditioning for your your chosen profession. That's true of anything. It's true of writing as much as it is basketball or, or Olympic swimming. Right. You need your reps. You need practice. You need the fundamentals. You can't just overnight say, I'm going to be a great writer, and then magically the words appear. Especially on deadline. I mean, the thing that people don't realize, you know, is how often we're called on to perform under a time constraint or time pressure. Uh, or, or, or simply uh, performing when other people are looking at us, right? Those are pressures that can affect performance. And athletes spend a lot of time understanding those pressures and mitigate them, and and learn and they condition and practice themselves in order in order to meet those pressures more efficiently. So, what else? What else do the best athletes in the world have in common? Well, they have discipline. They have enormous discipline, which is a very misunderstood subject. I spend a lot of time talking to top level coaches about this because you know it's it's a pervasive word uh, particularly among leaders and yet is a probably a profoundly misunderstood word uh, there's a lot of bad leaders that think discipline is something you impose on people with demand right uh, you know if you're a leader you you demand that everybody uh, behave in a certain way well most grown adults don't respond very well to that unless they live in a barracks right? So discipline is actually not something that's imposed outwardly by leaders. It's an inner construct. It's fostered by leaders and it's enabled by leaders rather than imposed. Uh, because what you want is you want people developing their own conscientiousness and 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 conscience um, in order to work together. And so Mike Shashevsky was really is you know he's fascinating on this subject. Uh, a lot of the great leaders I've spoken to, like like Mike and Pat Summit. Um, who was the great Tennessee basketball coach, they basically had very, very few rules for their players. And they weren't even rules. They were just uh, essential guidelines for the program. And if you didn't meet those, you were out. It wasn't like they spent a whole lot of time disciplining their, their people. They recruited people they thought were high energy, committed people. If they made a mistake in those assessments, those people were out of the program. Everything else within the program was actually pretty much about asking the players to police themselves. I mean, Pat used to say, discipline yourself so no one else has to. Because when a leader gets in that position, it can really erode the uh, the dynamic and the chemistry in the room. If you have a coach who's trying to impose you know, it, it, their will on you, sometimes it's not good for the team in the room. They resent it and they rebel. I'll give you a humorous take on that one. Do you, do you remember... Uh, Pat Kennedy, the college basketball coach of Florida State in DePaul. Yes. One of my assistant coaches at Columbia, uh, Pat was a mentor to him. And he said, you know, Pat, any advice as I take my first job? And he said, and Pat had a reputation for being, you know, very loose and maybe recruiting athletes who weren't uh, the most committed academically and in other ways. And Pat said, always, always enforce your rules. Don't have a lot of rules. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly what the great ones do. Uh, that that sums it up perfectly. Uh, Steve Kerr 
is really interesting on this because, you know, young NBA players, they're all addicted to their cell phones, right? Well, so is Steve Kerr, you know, um, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, is Steve Kerr going to tell Draymond Green, his move enforcer, hey man, put down your cell phone, you know, don't bring your cell phone into the locker room. And the answer is no, he's not going to tell him that. It wouldn't work. So what he has to do is he has to ask those players, you know, to limit their cell phone use within the context of the locker room um, for the sake of their concentration. You know, he he has to persuade them that it's the right thing to do or the best thing to do in their self-interest. He can't be the guy who says, hey, put your cell phones away, you know. And so, you know, on the subject of leadership, I think it's one thing as an athlete or as a performer at work to be great, to be a great individual performer. It's another thing to inspire others to to lead, uh, to manage. W- what do you think separates the great individual performer from the great leader? I would say the great leaders I've known are profoundly unselfish people. Uh, some of them have been great performers. Steve Kerr was a great clutch shooter in the NBA who won a bunch of championships with uh, with different teams, uh, the Chicago Bulls and the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Pat Summit was the captain of the 1976 uh, women's Olympic basketball team that brought home our first medal uh, in uh, in Olympic basketball um, for women. So, so there are those people, um, but but they are people who had sort of point guard mentalities on the floor. Uh, they were. They were already good leaders uh, as athletes. They were they were people others looked up to, um, and, and and again the, the earmark of great leaders to me is is generosity. They are much more interested in the overall success of the endeavor than they are about their individual role in it or their stake in it, and that's a big big difference. Uh, LeBron James is is probably like LeBron James's uh, assist statistics are every bit as remarkable as his shooting statistics. He's one of the great sharers of the basketball that ever played the game. Um, and so it's important to recognize that about leaders, that their 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 best quality is not their dynamic personality um, or charisma or their aggression and striving to the top. Their best quality uh, as leaders is their ability to draw other people in and get them to uh, cooperate with them. So in terms of performance at a high level, of everyone you've studied, you've met, you've interacted with, who, who stands out to you? Who's the most impressive? Well, Tom Brady, certainly. I mean, he's the, the, the greatest football player of all time, but more importantly, he was probably the best leader I ever watched. There's a reason why with all of his success and glamour and magazine covers and, and marrying a supermodel, that his teammates weren't more insanely jealous of him and actually liked him. Uh, there's a story, uh, there are a couple of stories about Brady that I really uh, not only like to tell, but I feel that they're uh, they're telling uh, about who he behaved as on the field. And, and one is that Brady would apparently pay uh, the practice squad guys who intercepted him in practice, which is a very uncommon thing. A lot of quarterbacks, especially high-level ones, resent it when some practice player who's the low man on the totem pole, making you know a minimal salary, not getting into games, uh, not really on the day-to-day squad, picks you off in practice, it's embarrassing, right? Um, not for Brady. Brady appreciated it because they were exposing a mistake that he was going to be able to avoid on the field on Sunday. So he would pay those guys to go all out and expose him in practice so he looked better on game day. That's one story about him that I've always 
appreciated, I guess. And then the other story about him is uh, apparently when he was in Tampa Bay, his final year in the league, there was an empty locker next to him that uh, everyone on the team could fill up with anything they wanted him to sign or autograph for their relatives, for their kids, for for whomever. And uh, every day after practice, Brady would spend hours sitting there and signing everything everybody wanted him to sign for his teammates and for the other people in the building. It was a very uh, generous thing to do. Uh, and it, what it said was, you know, you know, I, I'm here to actually, you know, give things um, to you guys, not take, right? Uh, so I, I enjoy those two stories about him very much. I mean, the other guy is Peyton Manning, who I actually know a lot better than Brady, and and spend a lot of time talking with in the book, and um, and similar. Uh, you know, Peyton Manning was an extremely demanding quarterback, but also one that was. Um, that cultivated real deep affection uh, from the people around him. And and that's really what it takes. As as Brady said, you have to care about the people around you uh, as a leader because if you don't, you're hosed, uh, were his exact words. And what he meant by that is that followers will actually take you down and sabotage your success if they don't trust your intentions. If they don't think you're a well-intentioned leader who has the good of everyone um, at heart, they will sabotage the operation. Interesting. It's why you see very, very dynamic leaders and very, very dynamic players and athletes uh, have great personal performances, but they just don't elevate the teams around them. They don't win as many rings as other people. It's fascinating. And I've had the pleasure through mutual friends, got to know Tom a little bit. And what I can say about him is, you know, he, he's, he's pure heart. The guy leads with with heart. He's pure heart. And, you know, you mentioned Brady and you also mentioned LeBron. And I think about their stories. Brady was someone who was overlooked, uh, you know, had to split his job in Michigan, you know, late draft pick. And then LeBron, on the other hand, LeBron James was a phenom when he was like 13 years old. I knew who LeBron James was at 13. So two diff- different childhoods, you know, not just in terms of, of, of level of competitiveness and, and how publicized their, their performance was. Brady had to like, not to say LeBron didn't work extraordinarily hard, but Everyone knew who LeBron was at 13. At 13, Tom Brady, not even at 18, 20, no one knew who Tom was. But the level of success, you know, it is really impressive on both ends. How do you view cases like that? Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. You're right. I mean, because on the one hand, Brady had a lot of sort of physical deficits to cure and, and a lot of skepticism um, from people around him who didn't believe he had what it takes, that, you know, that he'd never quite make it. LeBron James had pressure from the opposite end, which was being a very well-identified, very, very public phenom early on, and then having to live up to uh, to the, the idea of who he could be um, at, at peril of everybody branding him nothing but hype, right? So two different types of pressure, but I will promise you that underneath the, those two things, the task was the same, which was to cure deficits, uh, to analyze who they were physically and mentally, and to understand where they were weak under pressure, where they were, uh, where they, where they needed uh, a lot of diagnostic work and 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 hard um, curing of of bad habits or bad mechanics, uh, and they both went at that. I mean, they're they're very very unvain people in the end. Uh, both of them are willing to admit weakness, willing to admit flaws, and work to cure those. And what about the vain athlete? 
there are a lot of successful, very vain athletes. I'm not going to name names, but yeah, I mean, you know, they they win they win a little, they win some if they're they're good enough, if they love what they do and they're working hard at it. But uh, you know, look, there, there's some people that you have to play with, and there's some people that you want to play with, right? And you can identify those by uh, you know through their teammates, basically. Uh, there's a great guy in the book named Robert Hogan. Uh, who's a personality assessment sort of pioneer that uh, a lot of companies and, and the U.S. military turn to to try to identify good leaders. And Hogan has always said that we study leadership from exactly the wrong perspective. The great leader is not the dynamic individual who's clawed his or her way to the top. Uh, you identify the great leader by asking followers, who do you want to work for? Who do you want to play with? Uh, and, and that's the difference. Uh, you know, I would say that uh, people really wanted to play with Tom Brady. And the minute he got in the room in Tampa Bay, everything changed because everyone started trying to live up to his standard. And the very same thing happened with Peyton Manning in Denver. I mean, mastering a new system and new language as a quarterback is a very difficult thing to do. They needed a lot of help from the people around them to do it, and they got it. And so they both won very, very late Super Bowl rings, uh, Manning and Brady because so many people were willing to aid them in that quest. Same with LeBron. I mean, a lot of people are, 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 are trying to give LeBron James one last crack at it, you know, with the Lakers. I noticed we haven't talked about Michael Jordan. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jordan was obviously, uh, you know, obviously people love playing with Michael Jordan, uh, you know, and obviously he, um, he, he won an awful lot. Um, those teams were great blends thanks to Phil Jackson um, I think that Jordan's last go-round with the Washington Wizards, which I covered, uh, Jordan was in an unfortunate role. He was serving as both a GM and a player and was sort of flexing a little too much. Uh, and the flexing became resented, you know? Uh, that that was the difference between Jordan's first, um, first tenure in the NBA and his last tenure in the NBA was that he was resented by his teammates in his second tenure. He's playing on one leg too. I think he was injured a lot. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he look the guy practically. Ha I respected what he did. The man practically had to be electrified to uh, to get back out out on the court. He spent so much time rehabbing his body and and you know trying to get it moving again and get out there. I mean, it was a wonderful thing, you know, to watch that part of it. But the uh, the chemistry with the team was very very awkward and very difficult because you know he had his people in the front office. He was clearly more than just a player. And um, and at times, I think, flexed his, his authority a little too much and it didn't do much for the team. I'm curious because it's top of mind given I, I live in South Florida. I'm going to pivot to soccer. What do you think is so interesting and great about Messi? It always looks like magic with these guys, right? I mean, you just, uh, the, the awe of what a Messi is able to do when you watch some of those goals down in Miami, you know, you just, these involuntary uh, exhalations come out of your mouth. You're like, oh, and... You know, awe is is the beautiful reaction that you know we all wish for as as sports fans and observers and as the audience. But you have to go, at least in my job, you have to go beneath the awe and go, how is he able to do that? And, and the answer is is so tedious, and and it's not what people want to hear. But the fact of the matter is that he is he has employed a lot of work. You know, underneath the magic, just like any magician, right? Any sleight of hand magician underneath the magic is thousands of hours of very tedious physical practice in order to make it look 
so beautiful and so easy. And on that note, a, a bit of a bummer as I'm a huge fan of, of women's sports, the, the women's soccer team, what do you think's going on there? First off, everybody forgets they lost their two best scorers to injuries before the tournament ever began. Um, so that was unfortunate. Their two, their two best young players just simply couldn't play in the tournament. And so they had to try to forge some chemistry with Trinity Rodman and, and uh, Sof- Sophia Smith very, very quickly. And some people were playing maybe a little bit of a, out of position because of the injuries. And so, you know, it started out as a very difficult task to begin with. On top of that, you know, you have the world catching up, like Spain is just a beautiful, I don't, even if we were uninjured, I'm not convinced we were going to beat Spain. They were great. Um, but I also think that the coaching uh, was probably not a- as good as it has been in the past. And, and uh, you know, I think they got a little bit out coached as well. I-, I think they could have lasted longer in the tournament with a different coach. Um, but again, I-, I don't, I'm, I am not by any stretch convinced they were going to beat Spain. You know, bringing it back for, for the mere mortals listening, how are these exceptional performers, these world-class athletes, how are they just like us and how are they not just like us? Uh, they're just like us in the sense that they have the same flaws and insecurities and are subject to all the same pressures that we are. We overlook that too much. Uh, I mean, I'm just here to tell you from interviewing all of them, you know, uh, they've all over the years uh, struggled with, uh, you know, the burden of performance when they didn't feel like it, you know, whether they're hurt or tired or their marriage is going south or their uh, their bosses are, are being harsh to them. And, uh, and what they do, the way they differ is they have more tools to deal with that. Uh, and they acquire those tools through experience. They start with a better baseline of um, conditioning and fitness, as I say, for the job. You know, most of us, let's say we have to give a presentation. Um, you know, most of us memorize a couple of facts and then we go in there and uh, and and all of a sudden, you know, we have to recite those facts under a time pressure in front of other people. We're not ex- exceptionally prepared for that moment because we haven't practiced under the circumstances we're going to have to perform in. That's one big gap between athletes who perform well under pressure when they don't feel like it and the rest of us is athletes practice really, really hard at meeting the resistance they're going to have to be facing on the field or on the court. Whereas the rest of us kind of do a couple of things to be pretty good. And then we sort of plateau and we walk into the room and hope it's going to turn out okay. As of our preparation is really inferior to, to that of athletes. So you mentioned athletes struggling and, and what I think of is this unfortunate trend of seeing more athletes struggle with their mental health. Maybe it's because they're just more open about it now. Uh, well, what are your thoughts in general about mental health and the struggles athletes seem to be having? I think that uh, athletes are having a moment where they want to talk about it. I think it's always been there. Uh, I mean, I know that Martina Navratilova had as many mental health issues you know, as Naomi Osaka, when she defected from Czechoslovakia, uh, you know, as a teenager, uh, not knowing the English language, not knowing, not having any family, knowing she wasn't going to see her family for several years, if ever again, uh, having to learn English from I Love Lucy reruns, having to try to play tennis and adjust to Western culture and, and Western mores. Um, and she essentially had a nervous breakdown uh, on national television at the US Open a year after her defection when she lost in the first round to Janet Newberry. Back then, we didn't call it mental health issues, you know? Back then, people just called her 
fragile or overly emotional without really trying to understand what she had been going through for the previous year. So, you know, I, 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 I think that athletes now are finding some relief in being able to say, you know, I'm having mental health issues. Um, I, I do think it was always there. Um, I also think that uh, the tools are better for them to deal with it, the ability to take time off, to walk away. You know, Martina probably shouldn't have tried to play so much tennis in that first year. She probably should have worked on getting adjusted to this new life and new culture, right? And so when a, when a Naomi Osaka gives herself a break, I think that's probably a healthy thing. On the subject, you know, we segue to tennis. It, it seems to me that there are certain sports that are just, a, not that any sport is easy mentally, but tennis specifically seems to be brutal mentally. What are your thoughts? I think there's truth to that because if you think about it, you know, it's a it's a young person's game to a certain extent. And and these young people are traveling all around the world, uh, you know, pretty much alone. I mean, they may have teams around them. Some of them do. Some of them can't afford to have a whole lot of support. Um, and so, you know, it's just uh, you know, you're 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 in a locker room with people from all over the world speaking different languages. You may have some trouble forging relationships in those circumstances. And so it can be just a very, very lonely grind. Uh, you know, no question about it. Um, I think it might've been a little easier in the old days uh, when the tours were a little smaller and you had cliques and groups of people. I mean, Martina had Chris Everett to actually help her through uh, some of her, you know, early, early adjustments, you know, back in the 70s when she had defected. Um, and so, uh, but yes, I think you're, I, that's a good observation. I think tennis and I think, I think golf can be that way too. I think it can be very, very, very isolating, very lonely, very isolating. I'll never forget seeing in a, um, I think it was a Hampton Inn. Uh, I was, it was, I think maybe it was a Houston or Tulsa. And I remember seeing Hale Irwin, you know, two time US Open champion. I remember seeing Taylor went by himself eating dinner and reading a book across the hotel dining room. Uh, and, and I just remember thinking, wow, you know, that that is like not a glamorous picture. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder you know coming off the heels of the open you know i'd be remiss not to talk about novak Djokovic and what he's done and and something i'm curious your take on this and he's had a, a couple of his victory uh speeches go viral you know the, the one that that sticks out to me is where he talks about visualization and as a young boy in war-torn serbia at the age of seven he believed that he could become the best and he visualized it every day and went to bed thinking about it and he practiced and and it seems to me that some of the secret sauce with novak specifically is visualization and his ability to believe he can accomplish anything and his mindset and can go to an extra gear when others don't have it. And so what, what are your thoughts on, on Novak and, and visualization and, 
more generally? I think it's a critical tool that they all have it uh, to one degree or another. Uh, they all they all have imagination, you know, um, and but what they do is that they they acquire they acquire the nuts and bolts to make that imagination come alive, you know. You know, some some people find what they love very early in life, and I think Novak did. You know, he loved striking the tennis ball. Uh, quite apart from everything else, you feel a palpable sense of enjoyment in striking the tennis ball that emanates from him, and a palpable enjoyment in his own movement and flexibility. You know, he loves using his instrument, right? Um, and he loves working on it. His flexibility is extraordinary, and he explores and experiments with all kinds of wacky methods. Um, he's vegetarian. He's very he's a purist about what he puts in his body, and he fosters really, really extreme extreme sort of ranges of motion. Uh, all of that's very interesting because again, you have to have all that stuff in order to make the the flight of imagination <clears throat> come true. So, on that note, how much do you think is mental versus physical? 50-50, I'm here to tell you, uh, champions are made, not born. I mean, Chrissy Everett is five foot six and 125 pounds, and she's got really small hands and feet. And she won 18 Grand Slam titles. Martina and I talk about this all the time. We cannot figure out how she did it because the physical tools compared to a Navratilova or a Billie Jean King were simply not there. Chrissy's just her stature and her and her and her size just didn't lend itself to it. What she had was incredible movement, which was created by work. She had great footwork and great mechanics that her father gave her, and she had will. She had the deepest mental will you've ever seen. Do you think part of the the takeaway you want for readers is this idea that much more is possible than we think? Yeah. I think our elevators are only going to the 10th floor in... 15-story buildings, even those of us who think we're doing it really well and right. I think we can go higher. I do. So, you know, you mentioned Novak had the fortunate circumstance of falling in love with tennis very early. And, and you see this all the time culturally, where, where kids fall in love with something, whether it be a sport or academics or a craft, and then unfortunately, burnout happens. What What's your view on burnout and is there a fine line between you know joy and the effort required and commitment and potentially crossing a line where an individual can't come back from yes i think burnout though tends to be created by other other people who who you know whether it's parents or you know teams surrounding them who sort of don't give that person a break i mean one of the reasons why chris everett was able to, you know, play the game at the highest level from 15 years old to 38 years old was that her parents, when she was about 19, backed out of the picture. She asked them to and they did. Uh, so that was healthy for her. Um, she needed a little freedom. Um, I, You know, Coco Goff's parents seemed to have done a good job of that. They backed off, right? They backed off and they let her pick her own coaching team. And, um, you know, she's 19, about the same age as Chrissy. So uh, emancipation is important for uh, for the prodigy achieving longevity. Well, do you also think that a, and I, tennis is a little bit of an extreme given the focus has to begin so early in life, where uh, like you're on the path. I, I see it, I'm in South Florida. I see it here all the time. Uh, whereas there are other sports, I think 
mostly teams. I think the same could be said for swimming. The kid gets on a path and it's that's it. You're in the minivan. You're 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 traveling all over the place. Other sports, you know, basketball, football. I think some of the team sports, you don't have to necessarily make the commitment as early. Yeah, the great the great ones did. I mean, the Steph the Steph Curry's and the LeBron Jameses were were definitely playing the game as as very small boys. They were, but they weren't. They played everything. LeBron played football too. That they all played different. They they played other sports. And Steph Steph Curry uh, played as much golf as as basketball and ran track. No, you're right. He he had multiple interests, and he wasn't good. He he wasn't. He was. I just he wasn't. He wasn't. Let me rephrase that. He was very good, but not the same Steph Curry we know and love today. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, they all start in sports early, um, but you know, um, I mean, I think the multiple multiplicity of sports is good because for one thing, it 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 grows your body, right? Like their muscle plates are still setting, and so if you're doing one repetitive sport day after day after day, you're really kind of overstressing um, those functions, those physiological functions. Whereas if you're letting kids play multiple sports, you know, their 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 bodies are becoming stronger all the way around. I mean, Navratilova was a great, you know, young skier um, and played ice hockey, uh, you know. Um, Chrissy, not so much, but her parents were very restrained. Uh, Agassi, you know, Agassi wound up with terrible sciatica. And hated tennis. Yeah. And hated tennis, so uh, you know, yeah, it's it's interesting. But they, I, you do have to you you do have to find what you love and start young. But the role of I think parents and coaches when for with younger champions, I mean, Steve Kerr said your role as a parent is to shut up. <laughs> your role as a parent is to tell them that's enough. Now it's time to come inside, right? Well, the the thing, and and t- tell me if we're doing right as parents. But the thing we've tried to, and our we're, our kids do love sports. Uh, we have two little girls who are very competitive, which you know is good. But uh, we're we're trying to not emphasize the goals or the the winning or losing. We try to emphasize all we ask is to work hard and have fun, and then lastly, be calm. Because things aren't going to go your way, and 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 not spend too much time focusing on the outcome. Yeah, because outcomes aren't as controllable. What's controllable, right? And this is true for any any grown champion. I mean, grown champions have a, as hard a time learning this lesson as young ones. And so, you know, so let's cut our kids a break. I mean, but you know, you constantly, as an adult too, are having to examine what's happened to you in your life and go, well, what was controllable, you know. What what did I have some say over, and um, where have I? And th- and this is the great theme of the right call is so many of us drift um, into decisions and or we allow events to decide us or we we don't categorize our decision as precisely as we should. We don't understand why we're saying yes or no to things. Is it to please other people? Is it to make money? Is it to please myself? You know why did I? Why can't I say no to those things? Or why did I agree to do this, right? So we're, we're just not, we don't examine our choices as closely as we, as we might. And that can really get in your way. And, and so whether you're a kid or, or an adult, um, the ultimate question becomes, you know, can I, can I go to sleep tonight peacefully with what happened? You know, win or lose. 
and, and look, this is one of the reasons I'll hold the book up for those watching on YouTube. The right call, everyone should go buy it. Whether you love sport, if you love sports, absolutely a must buy. And you know what? If you don't, you should buy it because the lessons here are applicable for work in real life. And then one of the things I also loved, which I think really translate, you know, the, the book is built on these fundamentals of decision making. Uh, can you can you briefly walk us through some of these fundamentals? Sure. Uh, what I did in the book was I, I interviewed all the coaches and and great players that I have access to that I could get, right? From Steve Kerr to Peyton Manning to big wave surfer Laird Hamilton to endurance swimmer Diana, Diana Nyad to Jill Ellis, the coach of the women's World Cup soccer team who won two straight World Cups and uh, and and Frank Reich and uh, Kyle Shanahan. And I basically had conversations with them about their decision-making. Steph Curry's in there, Peyton, Peyton Manning again, Tom Brady, Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps' coach, Bob Bowman. I look for intersections. I said, what do, in conversation, in all the interviews, what do they all say that is essentially the same, no matter how disparate their professions or their sports? And, and I look for the commonalities in how they go about their business and how they make their decisions. And so that resulted in some pretty basic uh, commonalities. Um, well, the things that they all do the same, that they all have in common, whether it's Derek Jeter or Peyton Manning, um, they have conditioning, they practice with a purpose, a measurable purpose, uh, they have uh, discipline, uh, they have uh, similar intentions in how they go about their business, they understand what a winning culture is. Uh, they and ultimately they are very, very well acquainted with failure, and they understand that failure is a necessary precondition for success because you cannot improve something without stressing it, uh, and perhaps even breaking it. You know, I love that you mentioned failure. I forget where my wife and I heard this, but uh, it's an anecdote from Sarah Blakely, the, the, the infamous founder of, of Spanx, and you know. We just absolutely love this. I think her father used to sit at the dinner table and ask Sarah, what what did you fail at today? And it was a failure not to fail. And I think culturally that we should embrace that. You know, I think failure is good. If you're not failing, you're not pushing yourself. You're not being curious. You're not putting in the effort. Failure is good. It's part of the process. Right. And, you know, athletes have sort of engineers' minds in that respect, you know, they're willing to experiment and they're willing to kind of uh, fail and break their own hearts in the quest to get better or to win something bigger, right? So something that's become clear in this conversation and I think makes intuitive sense for everyone listening is these people, th these athletes have no problem with motivation at all. Yet a lot of us do. What do you say to someone who has trouble motivating to to go run, to go to the gym, to perform at work? Motivation is a real struggle for people. So they all struggle with motivation. There are days when they don't want to work out. There's days when they don't want to practice, just like the rest of us. What they have learned is to push through that initial resistance. And athletes don't... Uh, Dana Cavalea, the, the former performance coach for the New York Yankees, told me this. And it's one of the most interesting things in the book. Dana Cavalea said, athletes don't look at things from the perspective of how they feel in the moment. They look at it from the perspective of how they're going to feel when it's over, right? And so it's a it's a mental trick that they play on themselves where it doesn't feel good while they're doing it. They don't want to do it any more than we do. 
they push through it because they are able to focus on the, how good they're going to feel about themselves when it's over. Whereas the rest of us are, again, we're dwelling too much in the exact moment, right? Um, we're not we're not thinking about, I mean, Diana Nyad plays a great mental trick with herself when she was uh, practicing for the epic swim from Cuba to Florida on her training swims, even if they were six hour training swims, at the end when she had hit her numbers, she would tell herself, oh, tell herself, okay, just go five minutes more, just five, just five more minutes. So on that note of motivation, many are clearly motivated by this fear of failure. And then others are motivated by this, this real desire to, to win and this focus on the finish line. Well, I think they're, what they're really motivated by is not so much the desire to win. I mean, it, that's certainly part of it. They're motivated by, again, how they want to feel about themselves, right? So Diana Nyad, when she goes that five minutes more, when she get finally gets out of the water, she knows that she did everything she asked herself to do plus five more minutes, right? Lance Armstrong told me once, and some people don't like him as an example, but I still respect him. Uh, Lance Armstrong told me, you know, I was the guy who could take it. Lance knew that he could absorb more pain than just about anybody in the world. Uh, that was part of his self-definition. Um, you know, these are the things that they think about, whereas the rest of us, I think, are sitting around going, well, that hurts. Um, we're seeking comfort. Comfort is not the only thing worth seeking. And that's the secret. You know, that's what they know that we don't. And and it can be cultivated. I think the, the critical point, the critical, critical point is that it can be cultivated like any other habit, right? It's not some mindset they're born with. When you push yourself through a certain amount of tedium, it becomes easier and easier to do the next time and the time after that and the time after that because your body and your brain start to respond to all the positive chemicals and positive self-feedback that you're getting from doing that. So if you can make yourself do it for 10 days in a row, it gets easier and easier and easier. And that's what athletes know. Um, they, they develop a higher tolerance for practice and for conditioning uh, because they, they work at it, right? They push themselves through it in the early unpleasant part. And we can do that too. We just don't. <laughs> so, so for us, you know, for, for, for someone who, you know, is limited on time and resources, does, does that translate to, you know, I'll do an extra minute on the treadmill or, you know what, I'll do an extra uh, set of, you know, crunches at the gym. It, it, you start small and kind of build that muscle? Yeah. Cavalea, uh, Dana Cavalea, who who cross-trains like CEOs and business people, um, what he does is he starts uh, by teaching them how to gain command of their schedule, right? Which most of us don't really have, right? We get overrun by events. I'm, I'm guiltier of that than anybody. When I have a bunch of deadline projects and pressure, first thing that goes out the window is my workout, right? And Cavalea would come in and seize control of your schedule and say, no, that's a non-negotiable. You have to start making events respond to you and you set the schedule and you set the priorities for your day. You don't let yourself become overrun by other people's emergencies or priorities, right? Um, and so organization is a big part of it. I think that speaks power to the, the, the very early morning workout. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do right now is actually get up earlier and get out first, right? And then if, if it's done by eight or nine, you know, it creates a whole different feeling in your day. It really, really does. What's well, this idea of getting getting momentum, getting a win? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, another guy I talked to for the book, a guy named Michael Sophis, who's a he's a behavioral um, scientist. He says that there's something. It, it it it's almost like compounding interest that happens. Your self will grows with each small decision to do something different. You get stronger and stronger at it, and better and better at it. So it feels like routines are very powerful. Very, very. I mean, that's why you know things like Atomic Habits, you know, are are resonating with people because I think it's a truth that we all know deep down. We we just have to make ourselves start to apply it. So in closing, you've had access to so many incredible athletes. I'm curious if you could wave your magic wand and get access to someone you, you haven't had the pleasure of speaking with, whether that person is living or deceased, who would it be? Wow, what a good question. Uh, you know, the person I'd probably like to, uh, I'd like to crack Phil Jackson open. He's very hard to get interviews with. Um, and um, but when he does talk, he's he's really pretty geniusy. Um, same thing with Greg Popovich. Popovich doesn't the the great coach of the San Antonio Spurs, who's probably the best teacher, pure teacher in basketball history. Uh, Popovich doesn't do individual interviews very much because he wants it to be all about the players. So uh, I would say guys like that who are who are hard to get. Uh, I could talk to Steve Kerr. For hours, but again, Kerr is a, a prodigy of both Jackson and Popovich, and so he generally wants to talk about the players rather than himself. And on the subject of Kerr, I, I think you know, going back to this idea of dealing with adversity, he was profoundly impacted by his father's murder. I think it was in Beirut, and you know, bringing it back to you know that that's adversity, wouldn't want to wish on anyone. This idea of losing a parent prematurely informative years and it, it seemed to shape who he was as a player as a man a, a later to be a coach i would say it shaped him as a man i wouldn't say it shaped him as a player i think that uh i think those are two separate situational um personalities who you are as a player i think kerr from the bit that i have talked to him kerr uh kerr had a terrible temper as a boy uh, his both of his parents were professors, and the way that they influenced him was by exhibiting their own composure and self restraint in the face of his wildness and, and tantrums. And um, and his father taught him a certain amount of composure and, and said, "Look, if you can't, if you don't have it really, if you don't have composure really internally, at least bake it so that you're not showing the opponent your state of emergency." I mean, I think that's one of the big lessons that Kerr learned from his father. I, you know, honestly. I, I think it's a perilous thing to say. What what do you what do you learn from the death of a parent at the hands of terrorists? At the end, and, and you know, I, I don't know there was any great lesson in that other than how to m manage grief and tragedy. And so, I, where I'm going with this is, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote wrote about this in one of one of one of his books. Essentially, that many great leaders in the course of history lost a parent early, and it's this idea that when you're at a young age, when you're faced with this horrible tragedy, uh, you know, on one hand, it can really break people, but on the other hand, it can really shape them. And this idea that this terrible thing I could never imagine happened to me and I, and I made it through, you know what? I can maybe stomach this thing over here, which maybe isn't so bad. You know, I had the capability to get through this horrific event. It makes someone stronger. I'm hitting on the idea of resilience. It's like the ultimate resilience as a child to go through this unthinkable thing. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a great uh, sentence by C.S. Lewis, pain is God's ch chisel, you know? And I think what, what Kerr did was surrender himself to the pain and the chisel. Uh, you know, I think the people who do better with it and not just Steve Kerr, um, any kind of, oh, we're all acquainted with grief. Ultimately, it's unavoidable. And, you know, the lesson you learn from it is that you have to surrender to it if you fight it. Uh, you know, if you're trying to row your boat up up the tide and denying it, it's no, it's no good for you. You know, you'll capsize. I think that Kerr also has a really, really healthy perspective. Okay, it's what it's one of the things that makes him immune to certain pressures, right? Because, like, when I was talking to him for the book, like, I asked him a question. I, I said, you know, your parents were, you know, were and are. Your mother is brilliant. Your father was brilliant. Um, you have all these intellectuals in your family, um, and within that context, you know, like, why is basketball important? And he said, well, it isn't. <laughs> that was his answer. Yeah. Popovich is similar that way. They have this global perspective. And look, I, I love as Steve Kerr listening. I love Steve Kerr. Uh, so is there an athlete you think is underrated and the flip side overrated? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think Chris Everett uh, is, is one of the most underrated champions and athletes uh, I ever covered uh, you know, she didn't look overtly that talented. And again, she was very diminutive, 5'6", 125 pounds. But when you go back and look at the footwork, it's remarkable. Um, she had she had the greatest feet, the greatest footwork, the most economical, efficient. It was almost like she had some instinctive knowledge for how to get to a ball in the shortest, most efficient way. You know, you never saw Chrissy. If you think about Chris Everett, the image that's burned into your mind is is... Um, she was never in a hurry. And that's the sign. That is the most subtle sign of great athletic feet. You know, when people don't look in a hurry, uh, that is real uh, command, physical command. So um, so I would say Chris Everett. And also truly underrated as a, a really bright, deep person. Uh, you know, Christy got tagged with a lot of superficialities, but she actually has quite a lot of depth to her. She's very salty and funny. And a big reader, uh, just in, just smart as a whip, uh, just a, a, a underrated person in terms of character, in terms of athleticism, in terms of achievement. Um, you know, all the way around. I think Chris Everett is probably the most underrated champion I've ever been around. As great as she, as her reputation, she's great in ways that you actually don't really expect or understand. Um, so that would be one answer. Um, overrated. You know, there's so many people who are called phenoms or great athletes, and th that's just what's so misunderstood about them. I mean, Steph Curry um, is wildly overrated for his athleticism. People just don't understand how much elbow grease goes into him. The man, the man shoots 2,000 shots a day, and he's no bigger than your daughter. I mean, his natural build, he's the smallest, most slight. And, um, you know, people people think of Steph Curry as like, you know, one of the greatest athletes who's ever lived. And, I mean, it's three quarters work with that guy. So where, where do you want sports to go? Like, well, what, are you, what are you excited about? I think we're at a, you know, it's, all, it's cliche, but we're at a crossroads with sport. Like, wh wh where do you want this conversation to go? What ha where do you want sports to go? Um, I think that the thing that's exciting for me and the, where I want sports to go, and, and it's going to take some work, is to get athletes to a place of greater self-ownership. Uh, I think that um, for most of my career, 
athletes have been owned by other people. You know, we use this term owners of franchises, whether it's the NBA uh, and the NFL. But in fact, um, Olympic athletes have less self-ownership than almost anybody. The USOC and the IOC signed them up to really draconian um, agreements in order to compete. Um, they steal their images. Uh, the NCAA was hijacking athletes' imagery, name, image, and likeness rights uh, quite illegally forever. And I think we're moving into an era where athletes are clawing some of that back, but they're still facing really, really large organizations that would commodify them and rob them of their own value. And uh, I'd like to see more players become owners of franchises. You know, I'd like to see, I mean, I love that Serena Williams and her husband, Alex Ohanian, have bought into the Angel, Angel City franchise. You know, I'd love to see, you know, Tom Brady is taking ownership stakes. Um, you know, I, I really think that's an important evolution uh, because, you know, one of the things that has pained me so much, you know, over my career is watching um, athletes be used up and thrown away and treated as disposable by uh, these organizations or companies. No one cares about an athlete um, after they're done. They really don't. So I, I know we've covered a lot today, other than I encourage everyone to go pick up the book. Is there anything uh, you'd like to leave our audience with, perhaps something we didn't touch on or, or words of wisdom? Go five more minutes, <laughs> if you can. Schedule your workout first thing and then go five more minutes. Those are the two. That's what I'm trying to take from my own book, right? Just making slightly more disciplined uh, choices very first thing in the day. Fantastic advice. Sally, thank you so much. My pleasure. Enjoyed being here. 